a crazy time. And uh, I would encourage you to read the Word of God, spend time in prayer, and uh, believe that God has it. Okay? I, I believe that the next three to four months are going to be very rocky in our country. Um, it's not taking God by surprise. So let your confidence rest in God. Okay, just want to encourage you for that. There was a young man, an upwardly mobile professional, who had just purchased a brand new Hummer. He decided to test drive his new toy to see how it would perform. As he pushed the Hummer to its limits of speed, agility, and control, he found one obstacle too much for even his Hummer. High above a cliff, he lost control and headed over the edge. Fortunately, he had the presence of mind to jump out just before the Hummer launched into space. In the process, his left arm was caught in the door and torn off at the elbow. As he lay on the rocks, stunned, another driver stopped and rushed over to see if he was all right. The young man was crying in pain and agony. My, my Hummer, my Hummer, I lost my Hummer. Seeing his physical condition, the other driver said, hey, don't worry about your Hummer. You just lost your arm. The young man's eyes widened as, in shock as he looked down and found it to be true. Then he began to moan again. Oh, no, my Rolex. My Rolex. I lost my Rolex. <clears throat> well, we may chuckle at this story. Not true to my knowledge. And the caricature of a materialistic young professional. We also realize that this attitude of values exists in America today. Last week we talked about God comes first. The first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. We looked at three functions of the law. The first one, the reason the Ten Commandments are given. The first one is to regulate relationships. So we know how to relate in relationships. Secondly, was to maintain and protect community. We're all part of a community, and it maintains and protects community. And then it guarantees justice, guarantees justice. God's top ten, it's about relationship. The first four deal with our relationship with God. That's the vertical relationship. And the, and the last six deal with relationships with people. That's the horizontal. And when our relationship with God is in, is in order, our relationships with people fall into place rather nicely. These relationship lessons govern how to relate properly to God and with God. God established that relationship and he said, I am your, he says it to you, just like he said to the Israelites, we're the extension, I am your personal God, your personal God. We talked about other gods that are primarily invisible and internal, attitudes, affections, and desires. We listed six of the most prevalent gods in America today, self, sacrifice, sex, state, science, and society. This message, which is titled American Idols, No Substitutes, is how we take those attitudes and those affections and desires and turn them into visible images, tangible objects, things we can make, see, possess, 
or play with. In the Bible, these are, these are called images, idols, or substitutes for the one true God, the God of the Bible. Now remember, external images and God's people worship are an outgrowth. It's just a visible part of an, uh, an already idolatrous state of mind and heart. What we see may or may not be indicators of substitutes. Only God knows for sure. So God knows the heart. That's where we are. An important distinction to note, in your discussions with other people, they may claim to worship God as they conceive him to be. You ask anybody in your world, I would say, do you believe in God? Everybody say, yeah, I believe in God. They would say, I believe in God. Whoever I conceive him to be, a benevolent father, the intelligent designer, the force, the creator or friend, all you need to say to make a distinction is, I believe in the God of the Bible. Okay, Big difference, big difference. People can say, I believe in God, and they have no idea what they're talking about. We profess and believe in the God who's revealed to us in the Bible, the Word of God. The Bible is our standard for faith and practice, not philosophy, not religion, not human reasoning, not human experience, and not subjective feelings. We believe in objective truth, the Bible, the Word of God. All throughout history, people have worshipped other gods, but not the God of the Bible. This is what we find in America, and that's why we have a lot of American idols. Okay? I'd like to look at the text. It's Exodus 20. Exodus 20. It's on page 60 in the Bible in front of you, or it'll be on the PowerPoint in front of you in the projection. Exodus 20, verse 4 through 6. Let me get the right book of the Bible. Here we go. Okay. Exodus 20, 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's start by talking about what idolatry is. Roman numeral one is idolatry. Idolatry, history, and practice. History and practice. The first commandment forbids the worship of any other than the one true God. The second commandment we're looking at today forbids the, representation, the, the worship of any representation of the one true God. Any representation. All people worship something or someone. Okay? We have that in the notes. All people worship something or someone. Some are religious, some are not religious. Being religious has nothing to do with idolatry, unless, of course, your God is a religion. The first commandment deals with the object of worship. The second, the mode of worship. The first tells us not to worship any other gods. The second forbids us from worshiping God in the wrong way. Make the distinction. First one, don't 
worship God, other gods, the other one worshiping God the wrong way. Remember, these commandments were given to, to religious people who all worshiped some god. Let's look at the history of idolatry. People had in their minds who God was. They looked around, they saw the marvels of nature. The trees, the animals, the life-giving sun, the wind, the rain, the thunder, lightning, the stars, the moon. All of these things that they looked around and saw spoke to them about God. So they said, this is saying something about the creator, God. And since they didn't know much about God, they used representations or comparisons to describe God. These were images of their thoughts about God. These people made images of God in many forms. Joy Davidman writes, idol makers were trying to say what they thought about the nature of God. They were inventing what we call theology. Okay? They said, this must be what God is like. This must be who God is. Unfortunately, the idols moved from being representations of God to being God. Instead, they, instead of being representations of God, they were God. Then they started to worship the moon and the stars, and they started to worship this and that. And they were representations of God, but they were not God. There's an important distinction to be made between the idol maker and the idol worshiper. The idol maker was trying to give shape to a half-formed concept of God. The idol worshiper worshiped the image itself. Let me illustrate. The producers in Hollywood give shape to the images we worship. A Julia Roberts or Leonardo DiCaprio. And then fans of those images worship the image they have created. In other words, fans then worship the person. Professional sports create the image of a Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or an Aaron Rodgers. Sports fans then worship the person. Does that make sense? Worshiping the person. We're in danger of idolatry in our church settings as well. The cross or crucifix symbolize what God has done through Jesus Christ. They remind us of God, and what reminds us of God can be a great aid to help us in worshiping the true God. God is unseen. How many have seen God? Okay. Yeah, we, it's hard to see God. God is unseen. He's a spirit, a person we cannot see. We need settings, symbols, and places of worship to remind us of God. Visual symbolism has always been part of the church, whether it's painting, stained glass windows that teach stories, etc. Maxie Dunham says the problem comes when the symbol or the reminder becomes a substitute, when it becomes an idol or it takes the place of God. We want a vis visible image. I don't know if you remember the lyrics of, some of you went back this far in the, in the 60s. <laughs> there was a popular song in the 1960s that said, I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I got my plastic Jesus riding on the dashboard of my car. How many of you remember that song? Okay, I'm not all, okay. It's like they, they, they said, I just need to get this plastic Jesus, put it on the, dashboard of my car, and I won't get in an accident. It'll keep me safe, okay? They went from an image that, that uh, Jesus, and they said, now this, I'm going to worship this image and believe it's going to keep me safe. Traditional forms of worship, liturgy, hymns, worship songs, style of music, if they become the focus of our worship, they can take the place 
of God. They can take the place of God. We point to traditionalists and say, they worship hymns, and some do. But those who advocate contemporary music can make the same error and worship alternative rock. Forms cannot replace God, no matter what the form is. God comes first. No substitutes. These are subtle distinctions that we need to think about. Many people do not worship an image of who they think God is. Many have no religion or just a vague interest in the spiritual. And therefore, people will manufacture their own gods without realizing or admitting it. Some of their gods are are visible. They're easy to identify. Others are not so much. Now, before we look at the images, American idols, let's substitute some God. Let's look at the why, why of idolatry. Why, why idolatry? Roman numeral two, idolatry, the motivation, the motivation. There are two major motivations for idolatry. The first is selfishness, selfishness. I am the center. I am the center. I'm here to serve self first. This is self-worship. If I make my own God, then I can make it exist solely for my benefit. Hedonism or pleasure-seeking elevates self. It's based on the illusion that I am the center of the universe and everything exists for me. It's all about me. When a baby's born, it lacks the capacity to see from anyone else's perspective. It just can't do that. Their entire life centers around me, about my needs, my feeding, my diapers that need changing. I need to be held. It's my comfort, my convenience, my happiness, okay? And all of us went through that stage. I know you don't remember it, but we all went through that stage. The hard lesson that we all have to learn is, I am not the center of the universe. All of a sudden we discover, you know, you have a new baby and all of a sudden they have a sibling. And they're competing for attention. Or you get a puppy. And you get to have a kid. And the puppy thinks they're the center of the universe. And then, yeah, you you know how it goes. Discovering that you have to share. and I'm not the center of the universe. Everyone does not exist for me. In the other extreme, many give up in life in cynical despair. And reject that there is anything unique or special inside each person. And they forget or deny that each part of this universe finds its meaning in the connectedness, in connecting to the center of the universe, which is God. Okay, both extremes. We are not gods, but we are created and intended to have a personal relationship with God. A personal relationship with God. Selfishness states that no matter what the image or substitute I have for God, it exists for me. Some theological belief systems are very selfish and self-centered. The supra-faith theology believes that God exists to meet all my needs. I just use the right formula, the right words, and God has to do my bidding. Selfishness, I'm the center. Second motivation for idolatry is control. Control. I am in control. One writer says the essence of idolatry is its attempt to control an enslaved deity. Who is in control of my life, me or someone else or something else? 
This goes to the root of human nature. We desire independence. We desire it. We want to be independent. We want to be the master of our destiny. We are afraid to lose control. Therefore, we hang tightly to our life steering mechanisms and give God input only when we get lost or need direction or crash the car. How hard is it to give over control? How hard? Anybody else have a hard time giving up control? I like to be in control. Ask Judy. I got married and I just discovered I'm not always in control. She's not either, but you know, that's, that's how it goes. It's hard to give over control. I mentored two teenage daughters through the driving process. And I can't tell you how many times as I sat in the passenger seat with them learning how to drive, I wanted to step on the brake, step on the gas pedal, turn the wheel, or honk at other drivers. But I had to give up control. Now they get nervous when I drive and they want to take control. <laughs> you get older, you know, they see you. Anyway. Giving up control of our lives is a constant struggle. But the struggle is not about the control of a car, but the control of our life. God says, no substitutes. He says, let me be in control. Those are just two motivations for idolatry, selfishness and control. Now let's move on to American idols, the substitutes, substitutes. Idolatry, the, the substitutes, with selfishness and control being two primary motivations what might our substitutes be? What are our gods? This is not exhaustive. This is merely illustrative. We probably can't go through all of them today. If you want control over your life and destiny, what comes to your mind first? Anybody? What comes to your mind first? Money. Okay. That, that comes to my mind first. If I want to control my life. Money. If I could only win the lottery... If I could only inherit that $10 million, why do we want all that money? Because we think if, if I have all that money, it would give me control. Control over my destiny, my retirement, my boss, my debtors, my life. If I just had money, I could buy anything I want. I could go anywhere I want. I could do anything I want. I could buy an island in the in, in, by the Florida Keys. I could buy my own island. I, you know, you can do all kinds of things. You have money. And we live with the illusion that if I only have enough money, I can control my life. No worries. Anybody else ever listen to that? <laughs> yeah, it's like this illusion. This, and we're bombarded with the messages of the God of money. But there are always things beyond my control. Even if I have all the money in the world, health, for instance, or happiness. What about the time of my death or circumstances beyond my control or relationships? Why do people gamble or buy lottery tickets to support public education? <laughs> to give to the poor? To tithe to their local church? Yeah, I, I don't think so. Most of us, if we are honest, want the money for ourselves. And if I had all the money, I wouldn't need God to supply my needs. Or so I think. It's just a God. And one does not need to be wealthy 
for money to be a god. Yes, to be wealthy. In fact, some people, some of the people who strive for love or worship money don't have any. They're poor. And some who are very wealthy do not worship money. It's not what we see on the outside. It's an internal state of our heart. Money. Some create a tangible God of money. There's nothing wrong with money, a lot or a little, as long as it isn't a God or a substitute for God. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say love is evil or, or money is evil. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money. Very common in America. A substitute God. Second substitute is ego. Ego. Second, some people spend their whole life working endlessly to prove themselves. Why? Why? Why do we do that? I, I know many of us do. We want to prove ourselves. In a twisted sense, we believe that if we finally achieve success and prove ourselves, it will validate me as a person. It will satisfy my ego. I'm, I'm, now, I'm important. I've, I've accomplished something. I've, yeah. And talk about a trap. And it's in front of all of us in every kind of imagine, imagination, every kind of setting we have. Ego is self-centered. We do not find our validity in our success or accomplishments. Our intrinsic value is given to us by God and is discovered in that personal relationship with God. Irrespective of any of those accomplishments. A third substitute is fame. Fame. Who is Wally Moon? Who is Larry Bird? Who is James Gardner? Who is Cassius Clay? Who is Fran Tarkenton? Who is Michael Jordan? Who is Michael Jackson? Who is Britney Spears? Who is Justin Bieber? These are names of famous people. Some we remember. Many we've just forgotten. What good is fame anyway? It's recognition to the point of being annoyed everywhere you go. No privacy, no anonymity. But people strive for fame. Fame is an American idol. Then there are objects. Objects, letter D. Objects can be idols. It can be a car, a Rolex watch, it can be a house, a boat, toys. And I dare say most Americans today would worship gadgets instead of images. The latest flat screen TV, the computer, video games, smartphone, all of those things. These can be idols, material objects, things we rely on to bring us happiness. And they do make us happy for a while. You love that new car, but the, the new car smell goes away after a couple of years. And then you need a repair, then you need brakes and you need tires. And it's like, man, I liked this when it was new. Brings happiness, but without contentment, it's empty, devoid of joy. Then there are the idols of activity. Activity. Americans love, love to be busy. In fact, many people measure their worth by the state of their calendar. If you can look at your calendar and it's full, I must be accomplishing a lot. I must be important. 
Importance is defined by full schedule and a frenetic pace of activity. And you know, we ought to be busy, active, and productive. There's nothing wrong with that. No one wants to be lazy, but activity can become a god. This includes work or recreation, fishing, hunting, skiing, golf, camping, hiking, swimming, biking, pickleball. I just put that in there for Ken Parker. He had me play pickleball, and I fell and got hurt, so I, I'm not doing that anymore. It can be a god, so be careful of that pickleball stuff. Short career. Uh, she, it, was, it was a very short career. How about youth sports, which can be very healthy, but they can become a god, taking over every waking minute of a family's life, traveling from game to game, season overlapping season, all in the pursuit of something good while ignoring God. Activities of shopping, eating out, entertainment, never taking a break. The question is, do we rely on any or all of these activities as our primary source of meaning or happiness? Activity is good. A lot of these things are good. But do we rely on those as our primary source of happiness? If we do, they're idols. They're substitutes for the real God. Remember, all our activities can be healthy, productive, even fun. They only become idolatry when they replace God. Replace God. Idolatry does not lie in the idol, but in the worshiper. Not in the idol, it's in the worshiper. And the final idol in America may surprise many of us. That is the idol of church. Church? I thought church was good. It is. So is money. So is activity. When, when church takes the place of God in our lives, it becomes an idol. We have church buildings, church programs, church activities, committee meetings, activity, activity event after event. Is God at the center or is church? That's, that's always a question. Back in the 80s, during the height of the church growth movement, everything, was, everything became the mall church, something for everybody. And the level of activity just raised. And as long as you had lots of activity, you were a successful church. Activity, and I can guarantee you that activity became the goal and replaced God in many churches. When church takes the place of God in their lives, it becomes an idol. Is God at the center of his church? We become so adept at doing church that whether God is involved or shows up is incidental or peripheral. That's why, and I need this constant reminder that we talk about at the beginning of the service. We are here to welcome and meet with God. He is who we worship. That's why we sing songs to him, about him, and worship him. We use music and we do it as a group because it's hard, it's hard to worship a, an invisible God. It is. I admit it. I'm praying. I can't see him. We can feel him. We can interact. We, there, there are some tangible things, but worshiping a God. And, and church is a time where we can come together and be encouraged and worship him together. 
other people in the same sense of mind and worshiping the living God. The church exists for God, not God, for the church. It's easy to confuse the means with the end. And if the church is anything except a means to the knowledge of God, church, according to Joy Davidman, church can become a bore. When the church becomes an idol, a thing mysteriously holy and powerful in itself, then the goal of religion becomes getting people to church. The act of crossing the threshold has the magical power of saving them. Do we turn the means of worshiping God into an end in itself? Means and methods, style and volume become more important than the actual act of worshiping God. The spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, fasting and prayer, are they in order to worship God or have they become a God? The church, the church. The final section of the second commandment contains a warning and a promise. I want to look at that briefly before we leave. Number four, idolatry. The warning, the promise. He says, I am a jealous God. The fifth verse of Exodus 20, God says, for I, the Lord God, am a jealous God. That doesn't sound good. Isn't jealousy a bad thing? Yes and no. There are two sides to jealousy. We've talked about this before. Two sides to the jealousy. There's a positive side and a negative side. The positive side of jealousy is protective. Protective jealousy. Get this really clear, clearly. Protective jealousy is not an emotion. It's an activity. Protective jealousy is not an emotion. It's an activity. God values our relationship with him so much, he actively guards it and protects it. It's an act of guarding a relationship. When he says, I'm a jealous God, I am actively guarding this relationship because it's so valuable. In a marriage relationship, we must practice this positive aspect of jealousy, actively protecting the valued and exclusive relationship. We are careful to guard and preserve it jealously. This jealousy is not an intolerance of other people. It's an exclusiveness for which marriage was created. And we must come against any threat that will undermine the exclusive, pure, and holy relationship we have with our marriage partner. It's a lifetime commitment. One man, one woman. Let me say it again. One man, one woman. That's marriage. The negative side of jealousy, that's the positive side. Negative side of jealousy is something else altogether. The negative side is selfish, possessive, and controlling. And many of us have experienced that side of jealousy. It's really for a cover for love for self, not love for the other person. And this can be expressed in a marriage relationship as a controlling, stifling bondage that gives no freedom or trust to one's spouse. The jealousy that appears in this passage is the positive side of jealousy. God is a jealous God because he is protecting his people from loving other gods, from worshiping idols. Why? 
Why? To keep us from having fun? Freedom? No. God's one and only desire is to preserve his exclusive, holy, pure relationship he has with us for our best and highest good. This jealousy is grounded and rooted in selfless love. As God's desire is that we live full and productive lives, life abundant that glorifies him and works for our best. And remember, when we have this vertical relationship in order with God, all the other parts of our life also are in peace and joy. Because of the seriousness of this commandment, God issues a warning to his people. The first is a generational curse. The generational curse, Roman numeral A. After stating, I'm a jealous God, he says, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. The results or consequences of sin, especially idolatry, are like a pebble you throw into the water and the concentric circle moves out and affects everything around them. Maxie Dunham says, this cannot mean that innocent unborn generations are going to be punished for the sins of their fathers. That's a misinterpretation. The doctrine of individual responsibility, we are all responsible for our actions, is stated over and over again in both Old and New Testaments. However, it does, not, it does mean that future generations will suffer the consequences of their predecessors because there is a connection, a solidarity, a unity of the human race. Ezekiel 18.20 states, The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. Families sometimes reap the consequences of their forefathers for three or four generations of those that hate me. And we see examples of this every day, dysfunctional families with abuse and sexual abuse and addiction and all kinds of things. Families dealing with pornography, adultery, divorce, homosexuality, and perversion. Some families pass on the consequences of materialism, witchcraft, or overt idolatry. All of these practices, if we live in that, will have potentially long-term consequences to those that go beyond. Our children reap our system of values and priorities. There's only one power that can break that curse. That's the power of the shed blood of Jesus. We celebrated that today in communion. The shed blood of Jesus can break all of those barriers and all of those curses. And so if you had some of that in your past background, you claim and declare by the blood of Jesus Christ, I am free from that. You don't have to carry that. Remember, Jesus healed a blind man, and they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, no, no. Every man pays for his own sin, and he healed a blind man. It wasn't about this man's parents that sinned. Generational curse. Then there's the generational blessing. This is where we end today. The blessing. In contrast to the generational curse stands a promise of generational blessing. 
It says, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Wow, contrast. The phrase thousands of generations doesn't mean thousands of people, but thousands of generations, equivalent to myriads and myriads of people. This describes a limitless extent of God's grace and his mercy of those that love me. The effects of disobedience last for a while, but the effects of loving God last for thousands of generations. That can be your legacy. You may be part of that legacy as you have carried out that love for God. Our children and our children's children and their children, on and on, can reap the benefits of God's love when we love God first, make him first and have no substitutes. The blessings can go on and on. The generational blessing is culminated, of course, when Jesus came and he died, paid for our sins for all time. Once for all, for all people. American idols, no substitutes. If you're, if you're wrestling with any area of idolatry, and if you're, if you're not, you're not human, just to say, if you don't have any, any potential idols, then you probably, I don't, yeah, you don't, you don't belong here. Because <laughs> we all are in, in that boat. There's always something that tries to pull our affections away from God. But you can be set free. God paid a high price to restore the relationship with the people. And it's a relationship that demands exclusive devotion. And if you have had other gods or you're wrestling with that, you can turn away from them and turn to God. Ask God for forgiveness and be restored in full, open relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us these relational commandments for our good. And I pray, God, that you would just open our eyes to the, to the ways in which we create substitutes or we worship other gods and that we would focus instead on you, you the living God. And pray, God, that you would make us a people who worship you holy. And we pray this in Jesus' name.